Welcome to the Civitas Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with my co-host, James Wood. The Civitas Podcast is an extension of the Civitas Group, uh, which is sponsored by the Theopolis Institute. The Civitas Group is a political theology discussion group uh, that we've carried on for the last several years and are starting a new round later this spring, uh, during which we'll address questions, particularly questions about nations and nationalism. Uh, our focus has been on political theology generally, but also specifically on issues surrounding the current debates on liberalism and post-liberalism. Uh, we commonly have, uh, our guests are commonly people who have positions that could be characterized as post-liberal, different varieties of post-liberal that we've interviewed and had conversations with. Uh, but we've also thought it'd be important to have conversation partners who uh, stand in the liberal tradition. Uh, and defend liberalism. Uh, we want to, insofar as we're critical of uh, liberalism, we want to have sound critiques, and we want to learn more about the tradition that we're critiquing. So we're very pleased and honored today to have Professor Samuel Moyne, who's currently Chancellor Kent, Professor of Law and History at Yale University. Uh, he teaches at the law school and also teaches in the history program there. Uh, he did his PhD in history at the University of California, Berkeley, finished a law degree at Harvard, and has previously taught at Columbia. Professor Moyne is a specialist in international law. He's written some books on human rights, and uh, he has written some books on 20th century intellectual history. In addition to his academic work, Professor Moyne uh, writes regularly for newspapers and popular magazines and uh, intervenes in the public discussions of present day. Uh, and we want particularly to talk today about a couple of his books, uh, one, a 2015 book called Christian Human Rights, and the other, his most recent book uh, called Liberalism Against Itself, subtitled Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of History. Uh, Professor Samuel Moyne, uh, we're very pleased to have you on the, the uh, Civitas podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. I think one of the, one place to start for us, um, you're in a very different context than we are. Uh, we're operating within a set of Christian debates, primarily Christian debates about liberalism and post-liberalism. Uh, you're in a very different world. Uh, it'd be helpful, I think, to set some context and explain who your audience is, uh, who your interlocutors are, who are you trying to convince, uh, both in your books and in your um, more occasional pieces in, in the popular press. Well, I, I think you, you're asking the right first question um, because we're all situated somewhere and it really matters what your background is and what we know and who we're trying to uh, reach. So I'm, I'm a secular historian. Um, I was trained in, you know, to, to think about, you know, religion as as a as a, a cultural practice and a belief that i a set of beliefs i didn't necessarily have to hold indeed that i could take as a, a secular phenomenon uh that affects other human beings uh and i'm myself an unbeliever and someone of jewish background and yet Really, most of my career, I've written a lot about Christianity. Uh, back before the Christian human rights book we're starting with, I 
wrote about how some aspects of modern Jewish thought had Christian origins just because that's where the evidence seemed to be leading. Um, and in general, I think of modernity as coming out of Christian Christen, Christendom and Christian civilization, because where else could it have come out of? Uh, raising very big questions about continuity and change. And so I approach all of these questions in a way um, in the spirit of, you know, the, the, the perspective that we're all necessarily, you know, part of a conversation about Christianity. Uh, I sometimes have adapted Leon Trotsky's remark on another topic and said, you may not be interested in Christianity, um, but Christianity <laughs> is interested in you. So the secular should care about it. And I've addressed them to try to bring respectful, but although sometimes, you know, um, oppositional research about Christianity to their attention. Yeah. Uh, I have to say that's probably the first time Trotsky has been quoted at all on our <laughs> podcast, uh, much less favorably. His, yes, yes. His name well, does I'm not only adapting something he said. And so <laughs> I, no, I, never, I, his, I didn't directly quote him to be safe. Yeah. He's, he does, his name doesn't come up regularly on our podcast. Um, so part of what you're saying is that you're writing to other sexual, secular intele intellectuals and trying to persuade them about the historically integral place that Christianity has had in Western politics. And, and that's really the focus in a general way of your Christian human rights, where right. you're trying to sh trace the idea of human rights to a Catholic, early 20th century Catholic thought, rather than seeing it as a direct fruit or a natural fruit of secular discourse of rights that goes back to the Enlightenment. That's right. Now, it, I, I should note that, you know, in the course of researching that book, um, I'm, I made some friends, you know, um, especially at Notre Dame University, where I, you know, got myself invited and on fellowship and did some archival work and, you know, and in the secular space, as I'm characterizing it, there are a lot of historians, especially on the topic of Christianity, who also have a Christian faith commitment mm -hmm. or some other faith commitment and, you know, might come down in a very different place. But of course, those in, with whom I'm in conversation largely, um, you know, understand the project of secular history to be, you know, one in which we all have to have the same kind of you know, criteria for making arguments and, you know, testing those arguments at the same time, you know, this book has gotten a pretty interesting reception among non-historians who just are interested in, you know, the genealogy. And uh, it, I don't know if, if you've heard this recent uh, lecture by Alistair McIntyre yeah. um, about, human dignity in which he repudiates it um, mm. from his ethical Christian ethical perspective. But I think he leaned pretty heavily on my narrative mm -hmm. um, suggesting that, you know, we should have open borders between the project of secular, you know, historical or other scholarship and, you know, any other conversation mm -hmm. and vice versa. 
Yeah. To be specific, the, the argument of the book is that there's a 20th century Catholic movement. It's known as Catholic personalism that produces a certain vision of human society, which is focused on human, the human person. Can you connect the dots, how that, how that feeds into contemporary discourse on human rights? Absolutely. So I wrote a, an earlier book, which is a kind of more general book about the history of human rights called The Last Utopia. And in the course of doing that, I noticed just undeniable evidence that in the 1940s, when the United Nations General Assembly mm -hmm. propounded the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, which that was in 1948, there was just a kind of, you know, Christian ambiance in particular and and religious one in general. And I thought this didn't fit with the stories I had read. And so that's the kind of birth of the Christian human rights project. And you're absolutely right that against those who say, well, the French Revolution or, you know, secular modernity, you know, kind of against religious civilization gave rise to human rights claims. I, I try to tell a story where in the 1940s, through the the kind of good offices of this framework called personalism, Christian intellectuals could reclaim human rights from what they saw as the French Revolution's secular tradition of rights. Now, of course, in doing so, they often claimed that Christians had invented human rights long before, um, maybe long before modern times. Um, and it's certainly the case that Christians appear to be the ones who begin to talk a lot about human dignity as a necessary foundation for any theory of human rights, which French revolutionaries had never done. And so I kind of put together a story about how Christians in the 30s and 40s, thinking about their political options at a time of great upheaval, use this framework of personalism, which is about the dignity of the human person and the ethical consequences of it to, you know, find their way to a kind of new politics in which human rights would be central. And it just so happened that this was a, a moment when they could have a, a pretty big influence on the birth of human rights discourse, you know, with a lot of implications for later. I think it was a little concealed because you know, human rights did become a kind of secular progressive project in many circles and maybe in in the mainstream later, and it kind of obscured these origins. Would one of your arguments related to the that Christian personalist um, facet of your of, of your genealogy would 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 your argument be that this was an a, a good thing for like Christianity to kind of modernize or uh, do you see it also as a way that Christian, the, the church also tried to absorb that discourse and tether it to more substantive teachings in such a way to steer that discourse towards uh, more Christian uh, fitting uh, language? It's a great question. And of course, the answer is both. And that's why I think what's kind of interesting that it is a moment in which, you know, to use another kind of subversive 
way of thinking about it. Christians, <laughs> not Trotsky, human, not Trotsky, but <laughs> he, Christians, in a sense, co-opt human rights for yeah. their purposes, but by doing so, change themselves mm -hmm. and the meaning of human rights in the process. And this sets up big debates because many Christians reject that move. Mm -hmm. And of course, I think in the end, many advocates of human rights are first are forced to attempt to, let's say, purge this Christian moment from their stories and the Christian mm -hmm. legacies of the moment of of both Christianization and modernization. And uh, the great figure I talk about um, is Jacques Maritain, who, of course, invited reactionary critics and leftist <laughs> yeah. critics in part because he leaned in both directions um simultaneously and at different times in in his trajectory and so i think it's it's a really interesting moment in the kind of refashioning of tradition mm -hmm. in modern circumstances now i think it's got good and bad sides from my own ethical perspective you know i as an advocate of human emancipation, I think like the more modern people are on <laughs> balance, the better. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, I think, you know, it, it, this was insofar as this was a powerful move. I think it was a way of preserving some aspects of what came before and which had been, let's say, you know, yoked to even worse projects like European fascism in an era in which that option was off the table and so it was about let's say preservation through transformation and both uh, sides of that have to be acknowledged yeah i want to focus on the negative side of that of that move okay, that you're sure. talking about. Uh, you you use the phrase i think more than once in the in christian human rights that it's potentially troubling to have this genealogy uh, you raise the possibility that it's actually not a not progressive, but a retrograde move from a liberal perspective. So right. uh, I'm I'm wondering if that is the objection that is it based on just the the genealogy itself? Is it based on the sources? It's I'm assuming it's based on some substantive claims that are brought into the discourse right. of human rights by Catholics. Right. Uh, but two questions there. One is what are those substantive claims that you find troubling, and then have those, in fact, been? Are they still threats in your mind to liberal uses of of uh, human rights discourse? You, you you trace it past the 30s, 40s, 50s. I think it's in this book that you talk about the 60s as kind of a uh, yeah. retrenchment and a rejection of that of that uh, yeah. of that Catholic move. So it seems like we're back in kind of secular human rights discourse. So Great. is it still something that is a danger for liberals to adopt this discourse given its genealogy? So you're absolutely right that I ultimately judge this from my own perspective, not from within the perspective of those who you know, accomplish this, let's say, modernization. And so from my perspective, it, it, it's worth noting that it's a modernization, but it's insufficient, especially if it if it you know preserves you know, some things that I think ought to be left behind. But of course, others could disagree about that. In In this book, I was also writing as a historian of modern Europe. And 
And it was, it was in a sense, my main goal to show that it wasn't the, the left in European history that consecrated human rights in this particular era, but the right as it had to discard some options and, you know, embrace others. So that, that is, um, you know, that's pretty central, let's say descriptively, because we need to know if it was a modernization, well, compared to what, compared to what alternatives, including for Christians, some of whom, you know, moved much further left in this particular <laughs> era. Mm-hmm. Now on the legacies, I, I agree that I think the story would have to be that of human rights, let's say being co-opted again. Um, and this time it would be for a, a pretty new project in my understanding, which would be a new form of liberal internationalism that placed human mm-hmm. rights at the center. And that has to do with some other Christian origins like, you know, Jimmy Carter in our country's history. But those legacies never get entirely cut off. So when Donald Trump was president, uh, he appointed, well, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State at the time, appointed a Harvard law professor named Mary Ann Glendon mm-hmm. uh, as uh, the chair of something called the Commission on Inalienable Rights. And actually, one reading of what she tries to do with some of her colleagues um, is to, in a sense, engage in the co-optation one more time. And in re- reclaim human rights for a kind of conservative religious project. And not implausibly, she was able to say that that view of human rights was actually far more representative of what the world's peoples wanted out of human rights. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say she, you know, in part because of, you know, contingent politics maybe she didn't succeed in becoming a kind of mainstream proponent of the way human rights are thought about but it there are some links to this past that i'm you know i'm trying to reconstruct in the book even today can i I ask like who who would you um say uh, or what where are the primary threats against the best version of of rights coming from today would you say would it be from religious conservatives or would be from other movements no i i think um i think it depends um i think you know in general state power remains the biggest threat to human rights and that's true if we're talking about on a global scale whether this this the regime is secular or religious and of course there are a lot of despotisms of both kinds i have done a lot of work um in after christian human rights especially in a book called not enough human rights in an unequal world about how kind of human rights were were you know compatible with a kind of libertarianism around the globe a lot of people would say they're really about cultural libertarianism including uh you know rights uh to um you know divorce uh you know same-sex marriage and that's all true but 
I also think there was a certain connection to economic libertarianism. And so uh, another big threat, I think, that we should be concerned about is, um, in a sense, non-state power, multinational corporations, what people call capitalism. And there, my worry was that human rights, in a sense, weren't well equipped to challenge those kinds of forces. So uh, it's not at all, I'm not at all of the view that like religion is the great enemy. Um, and I don't think many people in who advocate human rights of which I'm mainly known as a critic, um, think <laughs> that religion is at the top of the list. Um, it depends, you know, what's done in religion's name. Can I ask you to uh, kind of put aside your historian's hat for a moment and think sure. more as a political theorist? Okay. Still thinking about the the Christian Human Rights book. Yeah. I mean, the 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 focal point is that you're isolating in the Christian personalism is the the dignity of the human person. Yes. Which is proposed by Catholics as a as a third way between the collectivism of the Soviet Union, totalitarianism more broadly, and the um, detached atomistic individualism of liberal uh, democracy and capitalism. Right. So the, and the person, the category person is thick enough as it were to combat both of those. So thinking as a, as a political theorist, uh, do you object to that concept of human person? And I guess the, the, the follow-up kind of kicker, would you acknowledge if, if you do, if you do kind of sympathize with any of that, do you acknowledge that there's a kind of flattening out of uh, the human in certain versions, at least, of liberalism that loses that that thick uh, that thick description you get in personalism? Actually, I I do I I I, I think I, I would you know have some anxieties that all by itself the category of the human person is a little bit too vague to do much work, um, especially if our interest is in, you know, it, it, you know, let's say, um, getting the diagnosis about liberalism, right? Because as you, I think, accurately characterize it, it, the way it was used in the middle of the 20th century was in a sense to suggest that liberalism had to be transcended in the name right. of something else. Now, interestingly, this would, this something else was placing individual human rights mm -hmm. at its very center, suggesting that maybe, you know, the idea of a third way ha ha has to be, if we're going to reclaim it has to be seen in some kind of critical, you know, relation to liberalism but not one that's about in complete repudiation uh and actually i think liberalism can be compatible with community um mm -hmm. i i i think that maybe the 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 work that the concept of the human person does is in the right spirit but maybe a a little too easy um as if that concept all by itself clarified how we should think ethically about you know the fact that we are are born into communities but as individuals in relation to parents and families and mm -hmm. 
you know, churches and local communities and even global communities. So how we think about that, I'm not sure the human person helps. uh, And I'm not sure it's fair to say liberalism is atomistic by necessity. Are you seeing one of the things I was intuiting there? are, Are you suggesting that the personalist strain of the mid 20th century, then it's kind of next permutation is the kind of the communitarian model would that was that was something you were suggesting absolutely i mean yeah. for sure the the communitarians who some of them were religious some of whom were anti-modern uh but some of whom were secular and and in a sense affiliated with liberalism and wanted to correct it i think can be seen as advocates of a similar third way mm-hmm. um model of the human person but if that's true then you know, it's just the human person concept, as I keep saying, by itself is not specific enough. It's not mm-hmm. telling us which, you know, wh- which team to join. Do we save liberalism? Uh, what What are the good parts? Do we repudiate it entirely? Um, the, the concept of the human person, I think the the folks in my book thought would do a lot more conceptually mm-hmm. Um for them than it might do, you know, in, in actuality. Yeah. So the, the, it's the concept has to be filled out and and yes. expanded, or are you also talking about that has to come with a set of institutional implications? Yeah. Both. In the, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know what you two think, but I'm uh, entirely on board with the idea that we need a very, you know, harsh critique of libertarianism today. Mm. And of course, these people were involved in that critique in in the past. And they they did say that they were trying to transcend liberalism, just as Patrick Deneen and others do today. Um, But, you know, there have been many liberal communitarians. um, Mm -hmm. And I'm one. And (laughs) then then we need also to talk in a in a second step about institutions like which institutions are conformist and suffocating and which are actually kind of up to the challenge of you know respecting our dignity in a way that honors us as individuals and also you know doesn't let us abuse our freedom uh, in a, in a libertarian age and connects us, you know, in proper ways to you know community and society. Anti-libertarianism yeah, and, is a is a, a nice connection between all three of us here. Okay, good. So I think that, and particularly a libertarian, a, a particular libertarian anthropology. I guess that's where yes. I would. Um, I think that's good. I, I think I think that's a really kern, that's a kernel in personalism, which I think is of of of, of durable value. Right. It, we might not go. Another, all, we might not go all the way to Trotsky, but yeah, <laughs> uh, he another, hated libertarianism. <laughs> <laughs> another uh, another question still on the still on the Christian Human Rights book uh, yeah. as an implication. Again, more of a theoretical one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you point out that the this um, personalism persists uh, in a kind of a purer form in Eastern Europe and particularly in Poland. Yes, uh, where uh, obviously John Paul II becomes one of the primary advocates of it. Uh, and his recurring phrase is that uh, human polities need to be organized uh, in recognition of the truth of man. 
And so that's that's an expression of this uh, this uh, personalism. Yeah. That uh, the 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 dignity of the human person, the human person is a spiritual being, uh, not just as a economic actor, or not just as a as a um, purely imminent actor in in political systems. But my question really is about speaking as a liberal. Does that does that itself the idea that polities need to be organized about truth about human beings, anthropological truth? Does that um, violate your liberal principles? Is liberalism also based on a uh, some vision of the truth of man, albeit a different one? Well, I think it depends, you know, to anticipate what how we're going to define liberalism, mm-hmm. and I think that these personalists we're talking about define liberalism in a a more or less ignorant and reductive way to serve Mm -hmm. their purposes um, and to suit the times. Uh, And it's going to be tempting to repeat that move if we agree, as I think we do, that there's just a rampant kind of mistake uh, in the consecration of individuals without attachments. Um, But then I read in the liberal tradition and I see that liberalism in its origins and in many of its most, I think, uplifting forms um, was about a a perfectionist belief uh, in who we are um, as human beings. Now it's not a a Christian view. It's it is actually I think intimately, you know, related to Christianity and comes out of it. If you want to get kind of historical or technical, it's a kind of Pelagian heresy. <laughs> um, but the the liberalism for which I want to stand up is one that says there's absolutely a best life for human beings. Uh, and its liberalism came into the world to advance that view before, let's say, descending into its current dissolute form. Yeah, we. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the Pelagianism point. We had a <laughs> one of our one of our former guests, uh, DC Schindler. Uh, he and his father uh, described liberalism as ontological Pelagianism, and uh, so it seems like you can see that there are certain strands of critique that uh, use that argument and. Um, yeah. And but you mentioned there's some of the hot. You're like yes, but sometimes these are caricatures of the liberal tradition, and you yeah. kind of alluded to some high water marks or some key figures. Could you introduce those to our audience? Who who do you think are the key figures that represent the best of the liberal tradition to help kind of ground any debate about it? Well, my personal favorite is Alexis de Tocqueville, but you know there are others who preceded him, like Benjamin Constant and. In, in the Anglophone tradition, people like John Stuart Mill and Thomas Hill Green, uh, later, later on John Dewey in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think none of these is a radical individualist in the sense that uh, they repudiate the idea that um, liberals need an account of the human and the best life for humans uh, in the sense that they repudiate the state uh, and the 
the, a, a crucial role in propagating a you know liberalism in this better form um and in particular are are, are critical of market libertarianism for the kind of not just the economic hierarchies to which it can lead but also for you know leading people astray in what they aspire to mm -hmm. uh, out of their lives yeah i, I want to get get back to that set of questions that you're just addressing but uh, this moves us into your more recent book uh, liberalism right. against itself as i read these two books together I don't know if you've thought of them together or thought, saw, seen a continuity between them, but it did About seem the like the same they, period in a way. I mean, yeah. I hadn't thought of it, but yes. Right. But they both seem to have some element of a, a liberal critique, uh, internal critique of liberalism. Yes. Uh, on the, uh, Christian, the Christian human rights, you're providing a critique of certain accounts of the rise of human rights, cautions about human rights in some formulations. Uh, that are that are in, you're afraid they're importing these perhaps importing uh, theological content that liberals would object to, and then the the liberalism against itself the title tells you that it's also an internal critique of liberalism. So is that a fair way to see those two books working together? I love that. I mean, I I think it's very plausible. I think maybe there's a difference in that Christian human rights is is let's say more about as we were saying earlier, a kind of conservative co-optation of liberalism, right. whereas liberalism is against itself is about how liberals uh, allowed themselves to, to, to be redefined by the conservative tradition. Uh, and so there's a slight divergence, mm -hmm. but th you're completely right. in in, in your description, I think. Yeah. And so the, the, uh, the liberals are permitting themselves to be overtaken and 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 uh, uh, de they deviate from liberal convictions under the impl impact of conservatism. You're talking about Cold War liberalism. Right. The dynamic seems to be primarily the Cold War itself, where you have the rise of this threat to freedom, and so the the liberal priority becomes defending the last zone of freedom in the world, which is uh, the West. Uh, against the totalitarian threat, um, yes. so but in doing that, you're saying that they adopt, um, for example, the uh, the conservative narrative that links up liberalism in its early forms in the French Revolution and, and utopian forms, I should say, uh, utopian kinds of liberalism with French Revolutionary terror, uh, link it up with totalitarianism. So that's the uh, have I got the 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 thesis basically right that that's what that's that's what it. I mean, I I think chron chronologically, I I begin a bit earlier in the sense that you know Cold War liberalism is is being constructed across the 1930s and 40s, even before formally the Cold War crystallizes in the later 1940s. But you know, on substance, absolutely what you say that. Um, in a sense, you know, the characters I, you know, profile Isaiah Berlin and the rest overreact to the Soviet threat and they abandon liberalism or redefine it in a conservative direction, in particular, liquidating elements of their tradition like its perfectionism uh, 
and it's you know i would call it progressivism rather than utopianism mm. um uh in christian terms i sh i show very directly that they embrace an augustinian perspective uh even if they have no christian faith commitments whatsoever um in and and therefore liquidate the kind of pelagian foundations um or legacy within modern liberalism yeah and in in the process you talk about the way that uh, they abandon certain kind of previous liberal heroes like um hegel and the kind of historicism that comes out of hegel that's a yes. that's abandoned yes. uh, they adopt uh, you know, lionel trilling is adopting uh freud into yes. liberalism so you get this kind of tragic Yes. Um, this tragic understanding of liberalism and also an emphasis on the inherent aggressiveness of human beings, yes. which again is, is going contrary to that, um, that perfectibility that you talked about. Yeah. What, I, what? I'd say, you know, Freud is like, you know, Augustine for the secular, um, <laughs> you know, it Freud just is kind of telling us how we're fallen yeah. congenitally the same right. way, you know, that's oh. funny, yeah, because we had uh, another guest was Eric Gregory. I think he would say that Rawls ah. was like a, an, an, uh, an Augustine for the secular. Ah, I know Eric, and and he's really respect him, and I think that's right. And and it's yeah. clear that Rawls was an Augustinian, yep. living through the same period, um, and and yet he 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 succeeds in a really interesting way in pushing liberalism in a different direction mm. than mm -hmm. the Cold War liberals did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's an Augustinianism. Freud is Augustine without Jesus, because uh, you know you're just left with this tragic and without redemption. Just, yeah, just right, libido. Exactly. So, what should Cold War liberals have done, um, given the setting that they were in? You said something about an exaggerated threat of uh, of I don't know if you said totalitarianism or the Soviet Union. Is mm -hmm. that is that the main thing that they mistook? Um, what would be what have been what would have been more consistent with the liberal tradition as you see it in response to those challenges? I think they would have said that though things, you know, there's always the risk of catastrophe in history, you know, reversals and setbacks. It, it can't ever be allowed to redefine liberal faith any more than catastrophe and setback can be allowed to redefine you know christian hopes uh about the future and yet the cold war liberals you know in response to the soviet union in a sense uh did abandon all hope and and they said it might be possible to defend personal freedom from interference by this new overweening state and that's it even at a time when in practice liberals were building the biggest and most egalitarian and most redistributive liberal states in history the very ones that inspired john rawls to write a theory of justice all those years later so i i think the cold war liberals are guilty of you know let's say out of very understandable fears giving in to fear itself but that that isn't you know what franklin roosevelt said to do uh, just the reverse 
Um, and so instead of, of kind of keeping the progressive liberalism alive, they, they, they said it was no longer credible. And indeed, if it was embraced, it would lead down a road to serfdom. And so they, they gave it up. Just on that point, I was intrigued by uh, Hayek's occasional appearance in the narrative. Um, yes, intersecting with the Cold War liberals, but not really. You didn't really include him as one no. in that camp, but uh, intersecting and sharing some of the same some of the same worries. I think it's crucial to just see that the the Cold War liberals redefine liberalism to within a hair's breadth of neoliberalism, mm-hmm. and in a sense, paved the way for it because they're there was first of all some of them evolved in a neoliberal direction like Karl popper mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also you know they didn't have an account of what liberalism at its best was doing and should do mm-hmm. so when the time was right for neoliberals libertarians as we called them earlier in the podcast to strike liberalism was without let's say theoretical defenses because the cold war liberals had spoken in mm. you know in ways so close to hayek and his friends if I, if i could ask like it seems like you're trying to also in your um trying to retrieve that per- perfectionist strand of liberalism or you could maybe even call it you get the word you kept using there was hope which has a, a very christian religious register you know absolutely and, uh, and uh, so if you're trying to redirect liberalism to be more of a liberalism of hope again, I guess a couple questions would be, what, what would be some of the, the goals towards which that hope is aiming and, and what you would envision the kind of institutional structures that would be conducive towards that, that you were trying to promote alternative. And, and I guess maybe one of the ways I'm, I'm also, another thought I had is, is that, that the Cold War liberals in their obsession with the potential tyranny of the state, you mentioned earlier, kind of, they neglected the tyranny of of market forces, and so is, would that be something you would want to draw a lot more attention on? And there, it's I, I thought it was fascinating because I think we read we were talking about reading one or we read in preparation this article you had in the Washington Post, which launches uh, from a critique of the anti liberals like Sorbamari. But it's interesting how his his recent writings would intersect Absolutely. with some of, the, some of those concerns. Absolutely. No. So on, on the last point first, I mean, to me, it's clear. And I think post liberals of the, you know, Catholic variety and, you know, progressives like Bernie bros like me are are (laughs) definitely converging in, in trying to single out the, you know, specifically economic libertarianism and its toll. I think, you know, the left got there first, um, and it's honorable that Sorab, who's a you know colleague of a kind, I'm <laughs> written for his journal is is has you know written what is unmistakably a, a you know a work of progressive theory um, in economics. Is this but, the uh, tyranny? Tyranny, tyranny Inc. Yeah, that's right. But 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 then I would say. You know, liberalism was never mainly about uh, economic fairness, and I actually would fault some of the new liberals uh, in England um, mm-hmm. and people like John Rawls, who really just kind of followed them, for being a bit too economistic. Because in the end, as we were saying about institutions earlier, 
we have to have a general inquiry into what institutions, including material conditions, serve to make the highest life easier to attain and our humanity, you know, uh, easier to, you know, embrace to its fullest. So that's why to come to the main part of your question, Mm -hmm. I, I really do think it's important to reclaim first the the idea that liberalism stands for a, 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 the best way of life not is not just about neutrality amongst different accounts of the good life that you keep in private and then think about it as a historical project in which as in you know christianity before liberalism we have to think about emancipation uh, in time uh, and therefore you know, have a certain guarded hope, notwithstanding reversal and setback in the availability of this highest life for all, you know, in some future that we can construct in this life. Uh, you A few minutes ago, you talked about um, Cold War liberals kind of gave up the faith, succumbed to that, uh, that uh, nefarious Bishop of Hippo, gave up their, gave up their Pelagian freedom. And submitted to Augustine, you compared it explicitly to Christians keep the faith in spite of upheavals and so on. And there were other points in your book, and uh, a, a little bit in our discussion, more in your book, where it feels like liberalism verges on being a faith uh, and having uh, having a kind of orthodoxy, an orthodox center. Uh, there are uh, the peripheral, uh, you know, people that are deviants and heretics that are, have abandoned yeah. the liberal tradition. A couple, a couple of questions about that. First of all, is that recognizable? Do you think that's, do you think that's fair? A second, uh, if if liberalism is in fact a kind of emerging living tradition, and has a certain, you know, certain religious character to it, how is Cold War liberalism a deviation? Why is it not just kind of a, a chastened version yeah. of liberalism itself that gets folded into the tradition as part of the just part of the enrichment of the tradition over time? So it 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 I do want to see it, it you know empathetically as part of the liberal tradition that's why it's cold war liberalism and there's no attempt in the book to say it wasn't really liberal you mm-hmm. know it was so conservative to lapse beyond the borders of liberalism that said I do want to contest it because precisely on the grounds that it's proved so influential among liberals in the same way that, you know, one denomination within Christianity, you know, precisely because everything depends on who gets to define Christianity might fight bitterly Mm -hmm. uh, against some rival denomination or sect, you know, the reformation and all the hundreds of years of wars over, you know, whether the one true church should remain one and was true. And I, I'm just engaging in denominationalism, if you like, <laughs> uh, and saying the Cold War liberals were wrong, not because they didn't propose to develop the tradition, but because they betrayed too much of it mm-hmm. uh, in doing so. Well, if, if Peter likes that that tie to denominationalism, oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah, if if you acknowledge that uh, that analogy, at least, even if it's a if, <laughs> if it's a loose one with religion, 
Yeah. Then if you say that liberalism represents uh, the high, you know, it's advocating for the highest form of life, it's not just a matter of tolerance. You, you're critical of Rawls Correct. on that point. It's not just a way of setting up initial conditions that uh, anal- enable us to live together. Then that sounds like a, a not just a, a liberalism functions as a kind of a quasi-religion, but also that liberal states function as quasi-confessional states. They have right. institutionalized liberalism. Liberalism, it's not a it's not a naked public square. It's a a, a public Absolutely. square that's occupied by a liberal vision of humanity. Absolutely. I, so, I would say you know I side strongly with you know Father Newhouse and that kind of critique, partly on factual grounds that no society, no state is going to be neutral. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always going to be, you know, a contest over, you know, models of how people should live. And I would say we don't have a liberal state and society. We have a neoliberal one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what was allowed to get the upper hand. And it defines and redefines the aspirations and actions of most of our fellow citizens. Um and so it would be nice to have a liberal state where liberals could regain confidence to deprivatize liberalism uh, and say, no, it, it should displace neoliberalism as the, the model. Now, because liberalism is committed to freedom, it's, it's automatically has some elements of tolerationism, but it also has to have an account of when people give up their freedom, misuse it. And uh, just as liberals can allow people to sell themselves into slavery, it can allow them to, you know, use their freedom in ways that are at variance with this liberal ideal, which I'm, I would say is, you know, an ideal about, you know, free self-creation. Mm-hmm. Um, so my critiques of, of so-called liberalism are very parallel to some Christian critiques of neutrality. Mm-hmm. Um, first, because it's false. And second, because even if it were possible, it's the wrong move since we should be warring over you know, what's the best way to live and try to get others, you know, to follow it and explain why it's better and not worse and all the rest. Well, the the language you use there, the highest goal or the highest yes. good that a liberal polity uh, promotes is the self-creation. You've used that yes. in places. And then you also, the other word you use that seems to be, I'm, I'm assuming it's somewhat analogous, is the word emancipation is, is a key yes. term. That keeps coming. Yes. And I, I, I wonder... Are there any limiting principles of like where that goes off the rails? You seem to suggest some one there of you can't sell yourself into slavery. And so it, are there limiting principles and what are they sure. and are they? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll just leave it there. A lot. Um, now I'm assuming emancipation is a value that Christians and liberals agree about, you know, liberals defines, weren't the, weren't yeah, the ones who perhaps. said that, you know, well, that you will know the truth and it will set you free. Yep. Um, the content is different, yeah. but I also assume that liberals, you know, believe in limits for a lot of reasons. One is that they believe in morality and that free people have to act consistently with 
the their own freedom and the like freedom of others of all the equals uh equally free beings out there and then there's that you know matter of the institutions and the material circumstances of individually and collectively free life and so if i say the state gets to take you know your money and taxation you don't get to say that's an an unfair interference with your freedom because it it's a fair one so there are going to be lots of constraints and limits and hopefully we you know have a vision of liberalism which acknowledges that many of us can only achieve uh, you know our, our 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 creative lives in community you know many artworks have been made by multiple people and i i just assume there will be lots of limits imposed by the fact that communities require limits not just you know anarchy uh without limits so i have no trouble at all with limits if if you uh, um acknowledge that liberalism you, you aspire to have liberalism as kind of an established is it too strong to call it a faith uh no of not a, at all of a polity one thing that that means certain people can't do is advocate for another faith at the center of the polity yes that that makes that makes certain forms of christian politics um intolerable in liberal yes. states is that is that an implication it, it it depends so a couple of points because i i think maybe to go back you know i would have no trouble in not just acknowledging the christian derivation of liberalism but many liberals have seen the line between christianity and liberalism is pretty hazy or muddy mm -hmm. um and you know those figures like Immanuel Kant or, or G.W. of Hegel, you know, really saw themselves as saving Christianity for modern people. Uh, and they didn't, they wouldn't have, you know, exactly acknowledged the need to break with Christianity to embrace their, you know, visions of emancipation. So if, if you allow that, then I have to acknowledge a lot of continuity with Christianity, or maybe liberalism is just another denomination within it. Now, it is true that while liberals can embrace a form of toleration, which is like people shouldn't be always coerced, uh, let alone you know, run out of town and so can be allowed in the community on sufferance. Certain practices do do not get to survive. And, you know, certain practices can can be burdened, including by a state encouraging people to live it, the, their highest lives. So, you know, if we say, well, Christians uh, over the millennia had lots of patriarchy and maybe religion and patriarchy are uncomfortably close, uh, then we're not going to allow, you know, patriarchy to survive. And if that puts pressure on historic forms of religion, then so much the worse for those forms of religion. And, uh, and, and then, you know, to the extent someone wants to have 
you know, another view of the best life that's not a liberal one, I think it's going to be permissible in the same way that neoliberalism places enormous pressure on us not to join it for mm-hmm. liberals to place enormous pressure on holdouts without coercing them, yeah. encouraging mm-hmm. them to embrace it. I could see why, uh, you know, I know Peter's already probably thinking about how to uh, conclude our conversation, but one comment I want to make before we lose you is I could see why a lot of religious conservatives like to talk to you uh like we like why we would want to have you because you just seem very honest about the nature of liberalism that i think a lot of people are are, are less either they don't uh, uh, they're not aware of these analogies to religion they're not aware of the tensions that are possibly uh at play beneath the surface or either they're not aware of them or they won't make that make it explicit I, so i really appreciate how you draw that to the surface I think it just makes the debate more honest. And, yeah. and, and I, I agree. I, I think there are a couple reasons. One is that, you know, many liberals don't know their own history. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also, let's say, a certain amount of, of strategy where liberals claim more neutrality than mm-hmm. they actually mm-hmm. believe in and mm-hmm. certainly should believe in. And so I think, you know, but I, I, I'm I'm for honesty across the board. <laughs> let me uh, let me end with uh, one one question about the contemporary situation. Sure. Uh, you say you say in your Washington Post article that uh, James mentioned that um, uh, liberalism has been is not appealing anymore because it's not uh, doesn't have the same ambitions that it had. It's given up its vision for perfectibility. Of course, post-liberals like Deneen, you're reflecting on Deneen's book in part in that in that essay, but post-liberals like Deneen say it's exactly the opposite. It's the triumph of yeah. liberalism. Yeah. Um, and I guess the fixing, particularly on the, your point about self-creation as kind of a central central value for liberalism, yeah. um, aren't we seeing a world in which self-creation is kind of rampant, uh, that people can determine who they are in some very fundamental ways, and not only uh, have the freedom to do that, but you have kind of institutional structures that are uh, enforcing sure. that. It seems like the problem is not that liberalism has been too curtailed, but there's there's a kind of liberalism that's run rampant. How do you respond to that? I think it's a it's a worthy charge. Um, so let me try to you know <laughs> dodge it. Um, I, I guess first, um, you know, I think Patrick's view you know, leaves out the possibility that I want to explore that liberalism hasn't been tried. Mm. Now, of course, a lot of people <laughs> uh, have said that about Marxism. Yes. And we, we don't want to the let them, we don't want to let them, you know, <laughs> do it. But what if what if liberalism is something that we ought to give a chance to see what it can do, especially in a neoliberal age. And what if Patrick is mainly upset about neoliberalism? I did review his book in Commonweal uh, under the title, Neoliberalism, Not Liberalism Has Failed. Not to mention that, you know, what he seems to provide in, in exchange, both in that original book, and in his most recent book, does not seem preferable on on just ethical grounds to me. Mm. But but that's none of that 
helps dodge the charge. And I guess I'd say that there are forms of libertarianism, especially economic libertarianism I'm rejecting, but then I can't, I can't find any reason, you know, why liberals should abuse their authority to tell people who to love or, you know, in modern, you know, scientific or technological circumstances, you know, to explore, you know, transformations of their, of their bodies, which are, you know, if you don't believe they're made in the image of God, they're just what nature led to in evolution. And, you know, what, what if we can change it? And in general, our identities should be open to as much um, experimentation and transformation as we see fit. That is what liberalism is about. And if, if, if you have good reasons for rejecting those things, then fair enough. I don't, I do have a reason to reject the redefinition of freedom in forms that ultimately are actually conformist mm -hmm. and degrading because they're about not being oneself, but adopting the preferences and buying the products uh, and living the lives that the market, you know, imposes on us. So I, I'm, I'm, I maybe want to say like we ought to try liberalism in the form I'm recommending before we ditch it, especially when we don't have something, you know, since the Middle Ages to replace it with. I said that was going to be my last question, but this is kind of a follow up. So I'm, I'm. <laughs> I'm going to say that this is part A of that previous All question. Right. To my mind, your comments just now stand in tension with your earlier confession to being a communitarian liberal. Right. Um, so you, a communitarian liberal is going to affirm you're born into a family, you're born into a neighborhood. You have these, you have these unchosen ties that, that define, define you. But then at the same time, you're saying this purpose of self-creation, which I, I, I assume means you can – recreate the structures of the family experiment in new structures of the family and there's you find no reason to limit that so well, families come in many forms and we haven't explored them all no no we certainly haven't <laughs> there's a lot more that we could explore i suppose i That's live in a very boring you know bourgeois <laughs> family but oh. I, I don't have a ground to prohibit others from exploration i hope that i've been creative in my own ways yeah but I don't think it's contradictory because I I didn't back community no matter what. Mm. And again, most communities, including religious communities, have been devices of domination and repression. So I'm only suggesting that individuals live in community for the purposes of you know, individual and collective emancipation, not because community is is an end in itself, but because we are social beings. And I, I, I think all experiments, even ones you might deem transgressive, require new forms of community. And so maybe we just disagree about the allowable forms of communitarianism. Yeah, the community is subordinated to the goal of the emancipation. It, and I think we're a more 
conservative uh, yeah approach with, to that with, would be that with, there's with, other considerations yeah yeah fair and i just yeah. would add though that yeah. like there can be not just individual emancipation but collective emancipation where my project that's creative is a team project mm-hmm. and so then community is essential because i can't you know i can't be leonardo da vinci except with my workshop mm-hmm. and they do most of the work and i i don't want to get credit i i, I want to mm-hmm. say that's a collective project well uh, we have uh, kept you uh, the the hour that we promised. Uh, Professor Samuel Moyne, uh, very delightful to talk to you. I found some interesting areas of overlap. We, as James said, we we do greatly appreciate the honesty with which you approach these questions and the insight, the historical insight you gave us. And uh, thank you for joining us on the Civitas podcast. Thank you. I'm very grateful. Thank you. <laughs>